1850, First Lieutenant Jacob Hamblin led a mounted troop of Mormon soldiers against a group of Native American warriors who had been raiding cattle from the struggling settlements near Skull Valley, Utah. Their orders were simple and grim. Find the Indian raiding party, chase them down, and kill them. On today's episode, we're going to see how this young officer, far from destroying the native tribes of Utah, would come to see his calling as a messenger of peace. He would live with them, learn their languages, and time and again broker peace between the tribes, the Mormon pioneers, and the Americans bound for the West. And in this first of a two-part episode, we will cover the incredible life of Jacob Hamlin. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. Jacob Hamblin was born in Ohio in 1819. He grew up in a hard-scrabble environment, clearing land and farming. A believer in the Bible, he had never joined any particular church, but he believed strongly in spiritual gifts and manifestations. Throughout his life, he would have dreams and visions and healings. But Jacob was no stranger to the reality of suffering and death. As a young man, he worked in a lead mine. The mining paid well, but it was fearful and dangerous work, and he had many close calls with death. The last straw came, though, when he and another miner were working 200 feet below ground. Suddenly, a large rock came loose in the ceiling. It crashed down on his companion's head, killing him instantly. Jacob had to drag his body through the mine shaft. He later remembered, Such an aversion to mining came over me that I did not go back to that labor again. Then he came across a Mormon elder. After hearing the elder preach, he thought that Mormonism seemed so plain and natural, I thought it would be easy to convince anyone of its truth. He joined the Mormon church and in time convinced his family to convert as well. After traveling to Maryland to preach his new faith, Jacob moved with the church to the Utah Territory. He arrived in 1850 and soon became embroiled in a military campaign against the Native American tribes. Relationships between Mormon pioneers and the Native Americans of the Utah Valley were often positive, certainly more so than was common in the age of Western migration. Brigham Young famously said, it is cheaper to feed the Indians than to fight them. But that comment in July of 1851 came from three years' hard experience, chasing and fighting the native tribes around Utah Lake, Provo Canyon, and Skull Valley. In 1849, the church sent a number of pioneers to southern Utah to build up communities like St. George and Cedar City. But diplomacy between Mormon pioneers and the tribes of Utah Valley had started to break down. Then, in January 1850, violence broke out after an older Ute, whom the pioneers called Old Bishop, apparently stole a shirt from a Mormon family in Provo. Three men then hunted him down, shot him dead, and threw his body in the Provo River. Such a vicious reaction to what by all accounts was a minor provocation outraged the Utes of the Utah Valley and set them on the warpath. Suddenly, the pioneers were faced with the grim prospect of a general war. 
They wrote to Brigham Young asking for the territorial militia to come defend them. Brigham Young initially refused any help. He told them, if you kill the Indians for stealing, you will have to answer for it. But the settlers persisted, this time sending Isaac Morley to petition the church leaders in person. The church leaders considered the problem. While Brigham initially thought to leave the Utah Valley pioneers to face the consequences on their own, Utah Valley was the lifeline to the new southern settlements, and unless they did something, they believed that Provo and the other settlements could be wiped out. Ultimately, they decided to launch a series of offensive campaigns against the tribes. General Daniel H. Wells commanded the Mormon militia, known as the Nauvoo Legion, and on the 31st of January, 1850, he issued Special Order No. 2. The order directed Major George Grant of the Salt Lake City Cavalry to lead a campaign against the Ute tribes of Utah Valley. The orders were straightforward. As many native warriors as do not separate from their tribe and sue for peace, kill them all. The Nauvoo Legion began fighting the native tribes across Utah Valley. The next year, Grant and his company were sent on another campaign, this time against the tribes operating near Tooele and Skull Valley. The struggling town of Tooele had lost 110 head of cattle to Indian raiders, and they were feeling very sharply their want. Grant's orders again were grim. Chastise the Indians in a summary manner, General Wells wrote, and if possible, let no hostile Indian escape. Among Grant's men on the Skull Valley campaign was First Lieutenant Jacob Hamblin. Hamblin and his platoon managed to track down the camp of the Indian raiding party. After encircling the camp to prevent anyone from escaping, Jacob, rifle at the ready, led an assault onto the camp. The chief sprang to his feet, and as Jacob drew his rifle on him, the chief began shouting something in his native language. He seemed to understand what the chief was shouting. I never hurt you, and I do not want to. If you shoot, I will shoot. If you do not, I will not. In later years, Jacob remembered a change that came over him in that moment. Such an influence came over me, he said, that I would not have killed one of them for all the cattle in Tooele Valley. Jacob, managing to make himself understood, promised them safety if they would surrender themselves and come with him to the settlement. They agreed. Now either Jacob was not aware of Special Order Number 2, or he didn't understand how it would be enforced. When he brought the warriors to his superior officer, the officer promptly ordered them all to be shot. As the firing squad assembled, Jacob protested that they had only surrendered on his promise of safety. But the commander had his orders, and to him, a promise of safety was not Jacob's to make. Now, many of the commanding officers of the Nauvoo Legion, like George Grant, Robert Burton, William Kimball, they had a bulldog determination. Once they were given a mission, they would carry it out no matter the cost. Now, that tenacity to push forward, come what may, would serve them well later on, as almost all of these officers would play a critical role in the 1856 rescue mission to the handcart companies. But as the Indian warriors prepared to die, Jacob saw that this was simply wrong. 
and he was every bit the bulldog that they were. In a last-ditch effort to save the warriors, he declared, I do not care to live after seeing these Indians murdered whose safety I have guaranteed, and as it makes little difference with me, if there is anyone to be shot, I should be shot first. He then walked over and placed himself between the firing squad and the doomed warriors. That ended the matter, he said, and the natives were set at liberty. On the next campaign, Jacob led his platoon against a raiding party again near Skull Valley. Jacob's troops surprised them near the mountains, and the Ute raiders scattered in all directions. To prevent them from escaping into the mountains, the troop divided in two, both making wide, encircling arcs to try to prevent the warriors from reaching the mountains. Riding as far as he could up the slopes, Jacob dismounted and proceeded on foot to a large rock that overlooked a narrow pass. He set an ambush by the rock and waited. Not a moment too soon, as a Ute warrior came running along the trail. Waiting until he had come within a few steps of where Jacob was hidden, Jacob suddenly jumped from behind the rock, leveled his rifle at the warrior's chest, and fired. His rifle clicked. His weapon misfired. Now, since the first settlers arrived in North America, they were amazed at how quickly native warriors could shoot arrows. The pilgrims marveled at the Wampanoag's ability to send four arrows into the air before the first arrow had struck the ground. Ute warriors were no different. Instantly, the warrior fired an arrow directly towards Jacob's heart. It stuck fast in the wooden stock of his rifle. But before Jacob could react, another arrow shot through his hat. Another barely missed his face, and the fourth arrow passed through his coat and his jacket, but did him no harm. His rifle useless, with no hope of closing the distance with his enemy or outrunning him, Jacob tried his best to defend himself, diving to the ground, grabbing stones, and hurling them with all his power. In the face of this rock-throwing onslaught, the warrior turned and continued his escape. Jacob's men later reassembled at the rally point. Other than one superficial arrow wound, none of them had been wounded, but none of them had killed any warriors either, and Jacob learned that his was not the only piece to misfire that day. Jacob always was open to divine manifestations and signs, and he came to see this as providential. He later would say, The Holy Ghost forcibly impressed me that it was not my calling to shed the blood of the Indians, but to be a messenger of peace to them. It was also made manifest to me that if I would not thirst for their blood, I should never fall by their hands. On his final expedition against the Indians of Skull Valley, Jacob again found one of their camps, and he led an assault that took them completely by surprise. But in this, Jacob didn't see any military glory or honor to be won. Instead, his eyes were fixed on the women and the children as they ran for their lives. Watching them scramble over the rocks, leaving bloody footprints in the snow, he would later remember, I fully made up my mind that if I had anything more to do with the Indians, it would be in a different way. But he made one exception for a notorious warrior known as Bigfoot, who for several years had been leading raids against the Mormon settlers and had escaped every trap and every campaign. Fearless, athletic, and enormous, Bigfoot and Jacob had already crossed paths several times before, 
and Jacob's family narrowly escaped being killed by him on a trip to Tuila. Now, Jacob saw his unmistakable, enormous tracks leading from the camp and out toward the hills. Jacob thought that Bigfoot deserved killing, he said, and so he set out after him. The trail passed along the highest ridges, and Jacob noticed a cedar tree off some distance to the side of the tracks. The tree offered cover, concealment, and the chance of a long-range shot at a dangerous enemy. Jacob began moving towards it, but coming within a few feet of the trunk, a strong impression came to him. Stop. Do not go near the tree. Jacob had come to trust these impressions as divine guidance. After pausing for a moment, he decided again to trust it. He backed away from the tree, and he returned to the camp. Jacob was a firm believer in prophecy and visions, and he put a great deal of stock in dreams. Over the next three nights, he had a recurring dream. He said, I dreamed of being out west, alone with the Indians that we had been trying about three years to destroy. But I saw myself walking with them in a friendly manner, and while doing so, I picked up a lump of a shining substance, some of which stuck to my fingers, and the more I endeavored to brush it off, the brighter it became. So impressed was he with this dream that he went off by himself and stayed some time with the Paiute Indians, freely loaning them his rifle to hunt and helping them bring in game. For the first time, Jacob began working out their difficult language. The pioneers of Tooele and the native tribes worked out a peace settlement, which brought Jacob face to face with his old enemy, Bigfoot. Now this happens sometimes in history, bitter and relentless enemies becoming friends at the peace table. Now Jacob and Bigfoot could compare notes, how many times over the last three years they had come close to killing each other. Bigfoot confirmed that, yes, that night in the canyon near Tooele, Jacob had got his family to safety not a moment too soon, but not so close as the cedar tree. Jacob thought he had been close that night to killing his enemy. Not so, it turned out. Following the tracks, what Jacob could not see was over the next hilltop, those same tracks had made a wide circle, doubling back and coming behind the cedar tree, the same tree that Jacob thought would offer him a killing shot. Bigfoot explained to Jacob what was really going on that night. If, when you followed me into the cedar hills, you would have taken three steps nearer to the tree where I was, I would have put an arrow in you up to the feather. Jacob Hathlin had a remarkable ability to see the situation from the eyes of the native tribes, a sympathy that in the mid-19th century was all too rare. He later wrote, When the white man has settled on their lands and his cattle have destroyed much of their scanty living, there has always appeared in them a disposition to make all reasonable allowance for these wrongs. Ever since I was old enough to understand, and more especially after sitting with them around their campfires, when I learned their simple ways and heard them talk over their wrongs, I fully made up my mind to do all I could to alleviate their condition. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Adventures in Mormon History. I'm your host, Nate Olson, and next week we will continue the amazing life of Jacob Hamlin. <laughs>